We come to the Bible reading, and we've moved on to the fifth chapter of Galatians, titled entitled, Freedom in Christ. So, chapter 5 of Galatians. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. For if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your inspired word. And we now just pray as Nick comes to preach to us on this passage, Lord, that your spirit may lead him and guide him. And Lord, that we may have ears to hear what he has to say, hearts to understand. And Lord, we will have a will to obey. Amen. I'm so excited about this passage. This should be up there with kind of Romans 8 or whatever your other favourite um, passages are. And it kind of encapsulates where we've got to uh, in the book of Galatians. And starts with this deceptively simple statement. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Um, the word search and the, under some sermon notes, they're there and there and there um, and on the back. <clears throat> if you find those helpful. Um, sermon notes will just tell you where we're going, give you space to jot some things down. It is for freedom um, that Christ has set you free. This is, this is the crux of the whole letter. And I guess we want to ask the question and just recap, well, well free from what? For, from what has Jesus set us free? Well, Jesus has set you free from the need to justify yourself before God. Isn't that a fantastic thing? And you know what justification is um, from when you were about, well, I don't know, from when you were about eight and you broke your first window or you punched your first sister or, 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 or whatever it might have been. You know what justification is. It's that making of an excuse. It says, she made me do it or I, it was, uh, I kicked in and went off in the wrong direction. Jesus has freed you from the need to make any explanation or excuse let alone atonement for all the times and places you have failed God or fallen short. And I don't know, that should, if you hear nothing else this morning, that should bring light um, and joy um, to your soul. It is just an amazing thing. So I think that you know this. I think you've heard this before. If this is the gospel, this is the good news uh, of Jesus Christ. You've heard this um, uh, somewhere before. But Paul says we need to stand firm is it, in it. And why is that? And the reason is this, because this is not a truth simply for one seminal moment of life. It is not a truth that simply applies at conversion, at the moment when you trust Christ uh, for the first time. It is an ongoing truth. Jesus has bought you continuing freedom from the need to justify yourself before God. You should at least smile at me at that point. Okay, Jesus has bought you, provided for you eternal freedom from the need to contribute anything to your status before God. Hallelujah. Isn't that an amazing and astonishing truth? And that, that status, of course, is the status of a child, a child who inherits all the good things God has. But the reality is this, that while salvation can't be lost, freedom can be. Our experience of that freedom on a day-to-day level that we stand not needing to contribute anything um, to our status before God can be lost. And we have to stand for it then. We have to fight for it. We have to defend it. And we have to hold on to it. Because it's possible to, to go back to the yoke. Paul says, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke 
a yoke of slavery. Uh, it's an interesting word <coughs> because it's used by Peter. Peter uses it in the context of the Jerusalem Council. Um, when <coughs> Peter and Paul and all the uh, apostles and elders in Jerusalem meet to ask about this question of what do we do about the religious law, um, Peter says, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? A yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have, have been able to bear. And he's talking about the law of Moses. So Paul says to these people, don't let yourselves be burdened by the law of Moses. But interestingly, he says, don't let yourselves be burdened again. So it's obviously there's, there's a statement that they'd be burdened before. Well, these people weren't Jews, so they weren't burdened by the law of Moses before. They were burdened by paganism. So actually what Paul is talking about when he talks about a yoke of slavery is kind of any system which tries to earn our stateness and our rightness with God um, by do's and don'ts and moral effort. He says, don't go back to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the do's and don'ts and the basic principles of this world. Jesus has set you free from the yoke of the law and he himself says it, come to me all you are weary burden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me and I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for yourselves my yoke is easy my burden is light Jesus says well to change the metaphor so Jesus has set you free from the treadmill the never ending treadmill of moral performance of trying to be right with God through your own efforts and never ever arriving. He's freed you from trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because of course you can't, can you? So it's possible, Paul says, to have experienced God's gracious rescue. It's possible to have friendship with God simply out of God's favour. It's possible uh, to have sonship uh, by spiritual birth, but in practice to have fallen away from the freedom of being a child of God uh, and going back to a drudgery a drudgery out of fear. How can you tell? Okay, how can you do a little bit of kind of self-diagnosis? Well, I think you simply ask yourself the question, why do I do the Christian things that I do? Why do I do them? This would be useful to go away and, uh, and do this. Why do I do this? Is it some kind of vague guilt? Kind of before God? No, I'm just... Is it some kind of vague guilt before other people? Is it, is it a sense of ought somewhere along the way? Have you got what one writer, call, one writer calls the hardening of the arteries? I love that. Hardening of the arteries. Going back to the law, you're just kind of being driven by ought. Then you're under the yoke. Is there any kind of flicker of joy? You know, when I said for freedom as Christ has set you free, was there a little flicker of joy? Or, or actually you're just kind of like miserably plodding on in the Christian life. Because there should be love and joy and peace and patience and all those good things we'll look at in a minute. There should be love for God, shouldn't there? And there should be love for people. There should be an enjoyment in his presence. There should be an enjoyment in his praises. There should be an enjoyment amongst his people. And I know our circumstances are different. Some of our circumstances are darker than others. But, but this has to trigger, it has to generate some joy somewhere along the way. And so I think you know quite quickly, with a little self-diagnosis, where, where you're at. And if there isn't this little bit of triggering of joy, um, then the chances are that, the, that, that you're wearing the wrong yoke. And I think there's a really helpful verse in 2 Corinthians 9. 
this is in the context um, of Paul asking the Corinthian church to make a specific um, financial offering. Um, he, he wants them to get, them, uh, get some money together for some, for some poorer Christians. And he says this, he says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves uh, a cheerful giver. And you, you'll have heard that before, I would think, in the, in the context of giving. But I think this is, a, this is an example uh, of the bigger principle, which is that when we give, when we, when we give, in, in, other, in other words, when we do anything in the Christian life, when we want to uh, do something for God, it, we don't do it reluctantly. We don't do it out of compulsion because somebody uh, has pressurized us into it. We do it cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't think that's just about money. I think that's an example which, which can be broadened out to the, to the whole of the Christian life, which is God loves uh, a cheerful giver. So I wonder, you see, whether um, obedience brought out of a sense of compulsion brings little joy to God's heart. That's what that verse says. In the financial sphere, if, you, if you're giving but you just felt you, you had to, uh, it doesn't bring that much joy to God's heart. I know sometimes we're going to be fighting against ourselves and we'll look at that in, the, in a moment. But you see, when life becomes a, a reluctant response or something performed uh, under a, self, uh, a sense of compulsion, then, then it's as bad as paganism. I think that's what Paul's saying. God loves cheerful giver. And in fact, I think obedience brought out of anything other than a sense of love of God and brought in cheerfulness to him, I'm not sure that's gospel obedience. And that's one of the challenges to preachers, you see. I think preaching, preaching has to reach your conscience. I think uh, those of us who speak up the front, I think we have to kind of try and prick your conscience a little bit somewhere, but it's not for us to try and drive you out of any sense of compulsion. And I think that's a really fine balance and it's quite a hard thing for, for, for preachers to do. But I can tell you that I challenged somebody two or three, three or four weeks ago. I just felt a little nudge from the Lord, just go and talk to these people. And I just knew it was going to lay guilt on them. Has anything changed? No, nothing's changed. It's really difficult balance. So Paul carries on. Strong words. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that everyone who lets themselves be circumcised is required to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. That's a really strong word, isn't it? You have fallen away from grace. You cannot mix and match grace and law. You cannot simply have grace for the times when you don't have enough strength or the times when you've failed, and then you think, well, I'll have law um, for those times when I feel strong and everything's okay cannot mix and match um, grace and law. If you want to justify yourself by your own actions, and that impulse will come to each of us at some time or another. If, if you want to justify yourself before God by your, your own actions, Paul says, particularly if they're going to go as far as um, circumcision and get involved in the, the whole law of Moses, then Christ is of no value. At the point where you attempt to justify yourself Say to God, uh, look at these nice things that I've done. Now can you please answer this prayer? Or, or, 
or God, I'm really sorry, I'm going to try harder next time. At the point that you justify yourself, you have said to the Lord that the death of his son was not necessary. So if you want to justify yourself, you make Christ of no value. If you want to justify yourself, you have to obey the whole law. So there's no point trying to have a mix and match because if you want to justify yourself by deeds, Paul says you've got to do it all the way across uh, the whole law. And as we know from Romans and other places, it's just not possible. So if that instinct is grabbing your heart, you're in danger of being alienated from Christ. And actually you've fallen away from grace. So for those who have drawn down this line of self-justification you will find yourself increasingly alienated from Christ. And actually, put, turn, it, turn it on its head. If this morning you find yourself alienated from Christ, you feel like he's, he is distant from you, then this is one of those questions to ask. Have I been trying to, somewhere in my life, justify myself? Go and have a little diagram. Those of you who like diagrams, oh, that was interesting. I said, I'll have a little diagram, and all your heads came up. That was lovely. Great. Brilliant. Let me see if I can remember how this works. Okay. I think this is, this is how the Christian life works. Let's see if we can get it. I think you came into the Christian life here. Whoops. I pressed, there we go. There. Okay. You knew that you'd failed. I think when you became a Christian, if you didn't, then something's not quite right. You... you you became a Christian with a knowledge of failure. At some point, there was a conviction uh, that you were not right with God. And a fear of punishment then would, would, would follow that. And then I trust that you, you grabbed hold of the gospel, the good news, that Christ died for you, that he paid for all the wrong things that you've done. And then I think, in, I hope instinctively out of that, what should happen is that out of uh, love and response and the sense of God's grace, you, you cheerfully lived um, a life that is... Increasingly like Jesus, a, a godly life. But sooner or later, coming back around this other side, you will, you will fail. And the f- critical thing is what happens next. Because actually we know that in Christ there is no condemnation. So the point of the cross, and maybe I should have put a different kind of cross there, is that actually there is no longer any fear of punishment that the fear of punishment should completely go out, out of that circle. So the next time you come round, you know you've failed, but you go straight to grace. And you take hold of grace, know that you're forgiven, and carry on cheerfully um, uh, living a godly life, living, living your Christian life. But I suppose there's a question, and maybe it plays for you as it plays for me, is that when... You've gone round that circle so many times and the thing you've failed in is the thing you've failed before, however many hundred times it seems to be. There's something... Oh, I missed a bit here. Come back to that. This cycle, then, is what Paul calls faith expressing itself in love. And in that passage, in the midst of what we were looking at, Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Faith is this grasp, this trust of grace, uh, this trust of the gospel. Um, Love is is the kind of life that's lived um, in response to that. So that is the Christian life, okay? 
you, you will fail, and you know you fail, but because of the cross, there's no fear of punishment. You go straight to, uh, to grace, uh, take it hold of by faith, and you, and you live the Christian life. And of course, it's not just love. It's all those other nine things uh, we'll look a bit uh, in a moment. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But for the moment, Paul sums it up as love. The only thing that counts is, um, is faith expressing itself in love. But as I was about to say earlier on, once you've gone around that circle so many times and, and you've continued to fail, the danger is you think somewhere along the line that you think grace has kind of run out. We feel like because we've failed so many times or because we're comparing ourselves with other people or whatever it might be, we feel like grace has run out. And when we feel like grace has run out, the fear of punishment um, comes in and then you end up with a very different kind of cycle. You have a knowledge of failure, which goes to fear of punishment, which, which goes to living things out of, out of compulsion and, a, and an attempt to justify um, ourselves. And that's not how the Christian life is, is supposed to be. And actually a miserable life, loved out of compulsion, is not love. Because you see what's happened, faith has gone. Love is gone because love is free self-giving to other people. So note this logical sequence. Faith expresses itself in love. Tim Keller says that faith literally energizes love. And Paul says, neither religion, neither circumcision, nor uncircumcision count for anything what counts. Uh, they don't count in establishing a relationship with God. Those things don't count in producing real heart change. What counts is faith in the gospel expressing itself in love. I want you to take a pause, because I've got more stuff I want to say, um, and just um, talk to the person next to you and say what struck you most, most out of that diagram. I'll tell you what, I'll put it back on the screen. There. Have a moment, um, open the window, and, uh, and then we'll carry on. Okay, let's carry on. So that cycle, you've got those two cycles there. The cycle that Paul says should be functioning um, for the Galatians, but it's not. 
um, they're back into fear of punishment. They're back into um, Christian life by a sense of, of obligation. Why has it happened? Well, he says in verse 7, you are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you um, from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come, note, from the one who calls you. It's a little yeast working through uh, the whole batch of dough. So I want to put it like this, that a few legalists can be quite a big problem to a church. Just a few legalists, often they're people um, gifted with a lot of kind of natural self-control, make the rest of us feel guilty. For Paul, they were doing more than that. It was, it was deliberate, wasn't it? They, they, were, they were teachers coming in and saying they had to obey uh, the Jewish law. But in the church, very often the people respond to law in different ways. And some, uh, some people are naturally lots of self-control and they love law and they make the rest of us feel guilty. Make us feel that we ought to be able to do better, kind of just by trying. And it's not true. And the net effect can be those weak people among us, those who know that we're failures, those who know that we need the gospel every day, lose our grip on grace. And Paul says that kind of persuasion does not come from Jesus. Does not come from the one who calls you. You're called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So we're called to be free called to be free from condemnation. Hallelujah. We're called to be free from condemnation in reality, before God's throne. The ultimate reality. You are free from condemnation in God's throne room. You are free from condemnation, then you should be free from condemnation in your experience before God, and then you should be free from condemnation in your motivation to live the Christian life. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But obviously it's not a freedom to be ungodly. It's a freedom which has united you with Christ. So you're not going to try and be unlike Christ now. It's a freedom to love. And what does Paul say the law is? The law we should be obeying says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. One command. Love your neighbour as yourself. And what we'll find out, it was the Holy Spirit who initiated your Christian life. Okay, when you, before you became a Christian, you were dead. You were a spiritual corpse. God had to send his Holy Spirit to bring you life even before you could trust him uh, and come to know him personally. It's the Spirit who initiated your Christian life. And the Spirit is going to go on working in you to make you more like Jesus in, in practical action. But it is a battle. I haven't got time today to go into this in detail, but read that little bit of the middle bit of the passage again. It's going to be a battle. It's a battle between the Holy Spirit making us new and, and the old remnants uh, of the sinful nature. And all really I'm going to say about that is this helpful reflection. Again, it's from Tim Keller. It's in the book. That most of the things the flesh wants to do, it says, the, it says in verse 17 that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And it's quite a strong word. It's, it's the, the flesh kind of over-desires 
most of the things that, that we want out of our and the flesh simply means our old um, sinful nature. It wants things too strongly, it wants things, it over-desires, it wants things in the wrong context. And the acts of the flesh are obvious, Paul says, verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and, and de- debauchery. Flesh is looking for kind of like an, an, an intimacy that, that's out there in um, inappropriate kind of uh, sexual gratification. But there is intimacy to be found in Christ and there is intimacy to be found in your marriage. Acts of the flesh are obvious. Idolatry and, and, and witchcraft. Trying to pursue kind of any, any spiritual avenue that is not Christ. Okay. Trying to get a spiritual satisfaction but it's not going um, through Christ in the name of Christ. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Oh, that's the longest list and they're all to do with just getting angry and narky with other people, aren't they? Or maybe a little bit more than narky. Um, dissensions and factions are quite strong, isn't it? Um, all coming, I suppose, out of covetousness. There's, there's kind of something that we want and we kind of overwant it rather than being satisfied in Christ and, uh, and with Christ. And at the end, drunkenness, orgies and the like. It's kind of like um, counterfeit kind of fellowship. Rather than seeking Christ and the fellowship that we have in Christ. Whereas the Spirit wants something entirely different. I, I think one of the things I really like about this passage is that, is that Paul says um, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Acts of the flesh are obvious, aren't they? Don't, don't you think? That list, if you read it again, you think, yeah, that's patently obvious. You know, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is pretty patently obvious as well. Um, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think, just really briefly, fruit of the Spirit is love. Again, this is Keller, really helpful. Love means being able to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what they bring to you. Its opposite is fear. Self-protection and abusing people. Its counterfeit is a selfish action where you attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself. Joy. Delighting God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Opposite is hopelessness and despair. Its counterfeit is an elation um, based on experiencing blessings, not for knowing the blesser. Causing mood swings based on circumstances. Peace meaning a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own. It replaces anxiety and worry. The fake version is indifference or apathy or not caring. It's helpful, isn't it? Forbearance or patience, an ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. Its opposite is resentment toward God and others. The counterfeit is cynicism or lack of care. Kindness. An ability to serve others practically in a way which makes me vulnerable, which comes from having a deep inner security. Its opposite is envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. A fake alternative is manipulative good deeds, doing good deeds for others so I can congratulate myself. Goodness, or maybe integrity, being the same person in every situation rather than a phony or a hypocrite. 
This is not the same as being always truthful but not always loving. Getting things off your chest to make yourself look better. Faithfulness, he calls, kind of like loyalty, and faithfulness, loyalty, courage is to be utterly reliable and true to your word. It's the opposite of being a fair-weather friend. Gentleness is humility or self-forgetfulness, and the opposite is to be superior or self-absorbed. Self-control. The ability to pursue the important over the urgent, rather than to be always impulsive or uncontrolled. And he says the slightly surprising counterfeit is a willpower which is based on pride, the need to feel in control. So we've come a long way, haven't we? Coming to the end. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. God loves a cheerful giver. Even though it's going to be a battle, the flesh desires one thing, the spirit desires another. And so Paul says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And I think the primary thing to take away from that verse is, is to keep in step. He, it means that the Holy Spirit goes first, in a sense. He's the initiator. He's, he takes the lead. If you want to put it in strictly come dancing terms, um, he's the professional dancer. Okay, he's the one who knows what he's doing. He knows where your feet should go, and it'll lead you across the, the dance floor of life, if that's not getting too corny but it means he kind of sets the pain sets the pace and he he knows the direction he knows what your next step is and uh, and we are to just keep in step with the spirit it's a lovely sense i think that he goes first has gone before so what is he trying to do the holy spirit is trying to convince you of grace you remember faith on the diagram, he wants to strengthen your grasp on grace. So you keep in step, I think, by just rehearsing God's promises and reminding yourself of, of, of the promises of God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. Holy Spirit wants to convert your over-desires to godly desires. To keep in step, I think, is to do a little bit of self-examination. These things that I struggle with, these sins, in what way are they kind of like two strong desires? And where should I be getting this thing that I'm trying to get, whether it's significance or, or, or pain relief or gratification or whatever it is, where should I be getting that from? That what, this, uh, what, is, what is at the root? of this sin? What, what is my heart doing? And allow the Spirit to help you worship Christ instead. Another Keller quote, we must worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, adoring him until our hearts find him more beautiful than the object we felt we must have. Just saying behind all these sins is a heart attitude which is seeking after something and we must worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit until we find him more beautiful and more satisfying than that other thing we're trying to have. And then let him lead you into action. When you hear that little prompt of the Holy Spirit, maybe you heard a little prompt when Ian was talking to you. Thought, ooh, um, yeah. And Ian, you bought a load of tracks, I think, for us, haven't you? Where are they? Are they? They're going to be in coffee. Okay. So if you kind of hear that little prompt of the Holy Spirit, that's something I want to do. And don't ignore it. 
but just walk it. And it means walking where we're going to feel vulnerable. Faith, Holy Spirit wants to help you with the faith, expressing itself in love. Love for Christ so that those other desires diminish. Love in action. So I feel like, you know, there's kind of, there ought to be a kind of William Wallace moment here. And he stands up and says in a Mel Gibson, a really dodgy Scottish accent, because of freedom. You know, it kind of, it's the freedom. Christ has set us free. Okay, stand firm. Don't, don't go back to the, the yoke of slavery. I know there's all kinds of reasons we love the yoke of slavery. It's predictable and all those other things. We talked about that weeks ago. But don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Stand firm. God loves a cheerful giver. I know there are all kinds of reasons why you may be low. But God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give in to Christian life by compulsion. I'm just miserably grinding things out. I speak from experience. Okay, speak from experience. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And the Holy Spirit is there. He's the one who helped you put your hand in the hand of God and he's the one who will help you have faith and express it in love.